You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. For those of you listeners who know my background a bit, you might remember the stories of my first few jobs after college. From being a mall cop to selling makeup door-to-door, I realized that I had skills that were being underutilized and that these minimum wage jobs couldn't support me or last forever. I spent years going through YouTube, reading books, listening to podcasts, and taking enough online courses to reinvent myself as a professional copywriter and digital marketer. Years later, thanks to my side hustles and drive, I've worked with national news outlets, multi-million dollar tech startups, nonprofits, and celebrities to build their brands and drive sales. None of this could have happened if I didn't develop in-demand skills. I had to do this alone, but you don't have to. You have Hustlers University 2.0. Hustlers University 2.0 is a community where you can learn real skills to earn money online today, starting with side hustles you can use to elevate your game. I'm not just an advocate for Hustlers University. I'm also a student. Every professor is verified to be making 10K to 500K monthly in their selected field. You get full resources, lesson plans, and an active community of thousands of other Hustlers University students working on skills such as stock analysis, cryptocurrencies, e-commerce, copywriting, which was my favorite course, one I actually went ahead and took last month. And as a copywriter of seven years, I even took a ton out of that, including some of the resources I was able to take over to my day job. You also learn freelancing, financial planning, affiliate marketing, business management, and so much more. If you're tired of depending on a boss who hates you to deliver your paycheck or have learned since the lockdowns that controlling the source of your income is vital to your individual freedom, sign up for Hustlers University 2.0 today using the link in the show notes. I'll see you there. today. I've wanted to talk to you one-on-one for a while. I always enjoy uh, getting to hear your insights over on the other programs that you and I are often on a panel on. So I kind of just want an opportunity to pick your brain on some stuff. Well, slim pickings, but go ahead. 
You, you know, you know what I know, and this is a genuine compliment from here. It's all insults throughout, but like okay. what I genuinely like about you is that you're a, you're a calmness with some personality and <laughs> I, I I'm not saying that about conservatives. I'm saying that about everybody, especially, you know, with, with millennial commentators around my mm-hmm. age, because I feel like there's kind of two sides to this equation. They're either try, trying to be like Tommy Lairn circa 2016, or they're trying to be William F. Buckley or worse. They want to be Matt Walsh and not to kind of throw fire at everybody, but it's, it's an interesting time to be in the media environment. I know that's kind of an understatement given the last decade. Some people who've been in the journalism field for much longer than I've been alive can probably say it's always been this way. Um, but uh, it's it's an interesting time to really kind of understand how people are getting their opinions, how people are coming to their ideas. And this this concept has been kind of jumping through my mind. It's that especially among conservative circles, it used to be the role of the commentator, the role of the pundit. It used to be that these were the people that were the most credentialed, that these were the people that had a grasp of their philosophy, that had a grasp of their worldview. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to assess current events through a conservative lens. By and large, it's still kind of it's still kind of that way, but it's it's drifted in a way where it's less. Here's how we should apply it. And it's more, okay. we should be leading the charge. We should be like an activist columnist. In theory, I mean, you know, look, you go back through the history of. Of commentary and you you go back to to Walter Lippmann, you go back to Walter Winchell, you go back. Even farther, you got H.V. Caldenborn on the radio. Uh, you, you had lots of commentators who had opinions and thought that there were their job was to persuade people of a of a particular position. My attitude is shaped on the years that I spent as the senior political writer for United Press International, where even though I had a bias and it was an identified bias. We were a news organization, and so it was incumbent upon me to at least see both sides. And when I could present both sides, now sometimes prevent both present both sides so my readers would have a better understanding of what was going on, and sometimes present both sides so that I could knock down the side that I disagreed with to explain why certain ideas were not helpful, um, while the ideas I supported were helpful. But there's a lot that goes into the process, I think, of producing good commentary. Uh, One of them, which is missing from the citizen journalists, as they call themselves, is something called an editor. It's interesting you say that. Um, Matt Taibbi from Rolling Stone, Glenn Greenwald, formerly from The Intercept, when when they left and started kind of doing their own thing, you know, especially after their own individual fallouts of their previous publishers, two two things kind of popped in my mind. One, it's exciting. These guys are unchanged. They don't have to answer to anybody. And then the other side of that was a little bit of fear because having worked with editors in the past, editors that I really liked, editors that I didn't really like, there has to be a check and balance to a degree. And I feel like that's you know, depending on where you're at, it it can either really strengthen people 
or in some ways it can kind of inhibit, but this kind of like rogue commentator thing that has become kind of popular over the years, it, it's not this great, you know, freewheeling environment that I think a lot of people think it is. Well, I've never written anything that wouldn't or didn't benefit from it having at least one other set of eyes on it before it got published. Uh, and the things that I write today for some publications that are more rigorously edited are better than the things that I write for publications that don't rigorously go through and, and review what I'm saying and, and find holes in my argument and challenge some of my assumptions and tighten my language and, and do other things. Um, you know, they're, they're, people think that because they can read, they can write. These are not similar disciplines. Um, one is a, one involves understanding, one involves expression. Uh, you wouldn't hand a scalpel to somebody who's watched every episode of MASH and expect them to be able to do an appendectomy or open heart massage. In the same way, I don't think you should expect someone who says they are a citizen journalist who is expressing their opinion on a blog, a vlog, um, even, in a, even in a publication, to achieve the same kind of outcome in the structure of their piece that someone who was trained by a news organization to practice the art of journalism um, does. And, and that's not a liberal conservative issue. That's an amateur versus professional um, distinction. And I'm not, I'm not pissing all over amateurs. I, I think it's wonderful. I think that um, the more vigorous the national conversation is about important issues, um, the better the country will be, you know, as, as, as I've said to you before, the answer to, to bad speech is more speech, not censorship. And so all of that's important, but we also have to understand that there are people out there who are using the avenues provided to them by the internet to engage in propaganda or to simply be malicious. That's not helping anyone. Who do you think is at fault? The individuals that are going out, spewing claims without sources, putting out stuff just to antagonize people, or the individuals that read it and just assume there's a degree of credibility behind the person who wrote them? Well, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, the, the people who are not responsible, who do not check their stories, um, who do not confirm their sources. Um, who, who are playing at being journalism by using what they think are journalistic tools, um, but, but really are just taking shortcuts are to blame. I think people who are not intelligent consumers of news, who are seeking confirmation of their beliefs rather than information, um, is, is intellectually lazy. Um, not their fault necessarily. I, I suspect that many of them come through academic environments where they're not taught to think critically, so they don't. Um, and it may never occur to them that they need to. You know, I think, I think for example, you know, that, that some of the people, and, and, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name, 
now, and I'm embarrassed that I can't remember his name, but but there's a famous American political scientist who wrote a famous piece on um, the paranoid strain in American politics. And it was an attack on the right. It applies equally to the left, but there's just on each fringe and, and the fringes are getting larger in both sides are, are groups of people who just, who just believe that they're being lied to, that there's some, some secret establishment that's actually running things that's anti-democratic. And again, this is, this is prevalent on the right. It's prevalent on the left. Um, and that it, it taps into um, the innate suspicion and skepticism that is part of America's um, America's inner workings, part of the fabric of the country, that we just don't accept the word of the king um, as as pronounced. That that we are free thinkers. And we have the opportunity to think for ourselves. Uh, and we just assume that the people who, who compose the elites um, are manipulating us for, for, for their purposes. You know, that's, that's, been, that's been evident in populism that we see now. It was evident in the populism of the 50s. It was evident in the, pop, evident in the populism um, that, that was prevalent in the 30s during the Great Depression. And in the latter part of the 19th century in the West, where people assume, for example, that the railroads controlled the politics in, in a number of states uh, in ways that were adverse to the, in, to the um, interests of, of the ordinary Americans and, and what really helped create the progressive movement, which precedes um, the capture of Russia by um, by the Marxists. Do, do you think it, it, when, when you look at how the media currently lays things out, there, there's often this idea that everything is from the top down. And, and we've seen this like with, with CNN, for example, especially if all the scandals that have broken out CNN in terms of how everyone at the top from the corporate level was really, you know, putting the words into the mouth of, their anchors and other people like it was a really top-down environment and then you look at like vice news for example uh vice news had a really serious situation in 2017 where they were inflating their numbers where uh vice news journalists and employees wanted to unionize and everyone thought that vice news was a similar situation because it was another news outlet that also had commentary journalism and stuff like that and then as you know documents and emails leaked it was really like you know the the commentators, the reporters, like they were controlling the newsroom. It's like it was from a bottom-up perspective. I, I think people want to find a, an easy answer for it. They want to say, well, everything is coming from one giant institution and everyone under them is just parroting the same thing. And often th there also comes the the parallel to that, which is like, you know, what if the inmates are running uh, the asylum? I, I think, um, you know, when, when you kind of look at both pictures on that, it, it kind of creates a situation where people it's, it's like they want to believe that they're getting the best news. They want to believe that they're getting the best opinions, but at the same time, it's like they also want to believe that there's more behind it than there really is. Oftentimes it's just people trying to come up with the best answers to things. I think some of that's true. I think that, uh, you know, your perspective, you cannot eliminate your own perspective from a story. 
whether whether you're trying to cover it objectively as news or you're talking about it in commentary, um, you have certain views, and those views are going to shape how you see things. And in spite of the fact that most of the of the elite media, the the chattering class media, denied this for decades until Fox News showed up. Um, this has always been prevalent. It has always been an issue. The difference in why I mentioned Fox is that it seems to me that when Fox showed up and was identifiably conservative and not embarrassed about um, the fact that they were endeavoring to show both sides of the issue, that they were fair and balanced, that this allowed the other publications to then be more open about their own political viewpoints. I mean, if you, if you were reading the Sunday New York Times two weeks ago, you read a piece by Linda Greenhouse in the opinion section about the terrible experience that um, Judge Kentanji Brown Jackson had in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and how awful it was. Now, I know for a fact that she didn't miss what was done to Bork and she didn't miss what was done to Clarence Thomas and she didn't miss what was done to Brett Kavanaugh because at one time she was the New York Times Supreme Court reporter. She was supposed to be the gold standard for objective coverage of Supreme Court nominations. And now that she's free to let her feelings out, we see where she actually comes down and she was not fair and she was not objective in a commentary piece. And we have to believe that those views influenced the way that she covered other federal judicial nominations and Supreme Court decisions when that was her beat for the New York Times. Now, it's also true that there are certain newspapers that set the agenda for television. You know, what's on the front page today in the New York Times, in the Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, in the Los Angeles Times? What are they covering? We need to be covering those things. And they typically chase each other on stories, that if CNN's covering something, then MSNBC and Fox thinks it's important. If CBS is covering something, then ABC and NBC think it's important, and they jump on the story. Um, what you cover, what you don't cover, is an important part of what I call news judgment. And again, getting back to the issue of citizen journalists, sometimes the news judgment of the citizen journalist is better than the news judgment of the established reporter, the established media bureaucracy, big media, if you want to call it that. They find stories, um, the Hunter Biden laptop being an excellent one, um, that do matter, that are important. And, you know, as you and I are talking about this, there are a whole bunch of stories out there about Jared Kushner and MBS, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, what business dealings they may be engaged in and what information might have been exchanged. This is almost an exact duplicate of the Hunter Biden story. You know, who is, who is, you know, who's giving Hunter Biden money? Who's giving Jared Kushner money? Which countries are they getting political influence about? A lot more evidence about Hunter than there was about Jared Kushner, at least at this point. But because the Biden story, the Hunter story, would have been damaging to Joe Biden and what I think was the elite media's decision to remove Donald Trump from office, um, 
they sat on the Hunter Biden story. Oh, did you see that? Did you see that college lecture with that one editor from the New York Times? This one college student came up and actually asked her, it's like, hey, listen, everyone is starting to admit now that the Hunter Biden laptop was real. Are you guys going to, you know, make a comment on it or do additional reporting? Because you basically just told everyone for a year that it was fake and it was disinformation. Do you think you set back, you know, the discourse regarding the situation by calling it disinformation? Are you going to say anything about that? Are you going to retract that? And she was basically like, yeah, I don't don't feel it's important. So I'm not even going to talk about it. Well, remember, the New York Times won a, won a Pulitzer Prize for publishing Walter Durante's false reports um, about what was going on in Ukraine in the 1930s, when he was saying there was no famine, when Stalin was trying to starve the Ukrainians out of off their farms and into the collectives. They also um, said there was and, no Holocaust going on. Right. That's yes. And that Castro, you know, 30 years later, that Castro was a good guy. <laughs> um, I don't think they've retracted that either. Uh, and I know a bunch of Cuban political refugees who would argue very strongly that he was not. Um, but, you know, these are these are you know, reporters have biases and the, and the biases are, are most often expressed, I think, in what they choose to cover and what they don't choose to cover. And, and to put it into the national perspective, um, the proliferation of the use of anonymous sources in the Trump administration became so frequent that I was actually alarmed by it. I don't think that any other administration, save perhaps Nixon, would have relied on so many people who refused to go on the record. Um, I was shocked, for example, that my colleagues in the press showed no interest in the identity of the whistleblower who reported misdeeds by the Trump administration. Was it, was it the uh, guy they kept calling anonymous who came out with that book? No, it was not anonymous. Anonymous turned out instead of being a high Trump administration official to believe I'd be the, the chief of staff or the deputy chief of staff at the department of Homeland security. Um, Not exactly a high ranking Trump administration official, but you know, it, it was what it was. And, and, you know, I'm talking about uh, the person who originated the investigation that led to the Ukraine stuff. And oh, to, that that CIA. And, and there guy, was yeah. there was a name. And anyone who tweeted that name had the tweet pulled down. And anyone who put that name on Facebook had the Facebook post blocked because everyone in the press was um, colluding to protect the identity of the whistleblower. In any other situation that I've experienced, they, especially, particularly if it was a Clinton administration whistleblower or an Obama administration whistleblower, they'd want to know who they were, where they went to college, what their sexual preference was, what they ate, what they drank, who they hang, hung out with, who they worked for, and what ties they might have to right-wing political officials or right-wing dark money organizations. They showed no interest in this when it came to the Clinton whistleblower. And I talked to oh I talked gosh. to serious reporters, people I know, friends of mine who said it's not an issue. It's not an issue. And I kept saying, well, checking this guy out, checking out his bona fides, seeing if he's got an axe to grind. Isn't isn't that important? No, I can't imagine another story where someone with that kind of influence on the events of the of the country 
um, and on the presidency itself, where where their background, their interest wouldn't be something that people would wonder about. Oh, and I mean, it's it's horrifying. You bring up that uh, that that individual who sparked the whole uh, Ukraine situation in 2019. Um, Ken LaCour is a friend of mine. He was the number three under Roger Ailes at Fox News, and he left about six months after Roger died in uh, 2017. Uh, he, he was ousted when Rupert Murdoch's kids came in, and, and they had a whole leadership change. He went ahead and tweeted out the name of the of the individual, and within a day, his email uh, newsletter provider went ahead and kicked him. He lost his domain access. There was a piece. I don't remember if it was in the New York Times or if it was also in HuffPost where they were saying that because he hired a couple of like Azerbaijani content writers that, you know, he was just, um, uh, you know, a content mill for right wing disinformation. I mean, they were finding stuff about him that, you know, where, where they could find like an inch and they grew it into miles. Mm-hmm. And it, it took it took like three years for, for Ken LaCourt to finally get to the point where now he's starting to get his audience back. But it was like, he is too dangerous to be online. He went ahead and ousted our whistleblower. Who's right next to sainthood. He's our guy. We have to protect him at all costs. I'm looking at him. I'm like, Ken LaCourt was never a commentator. Ken LaCourt was not really a reporter at the time. He was always just a producer. He was always just a, a guy who got things done. Like, you know, he's not, he's not this threat to society that you've made him out to be. And it was him and many other people. And there, there was no remorse. There, there was absolutely no apology. They, they'd do it again if they found a reason. And it, it's horrifying with that type of gatekeeping. It speaks poorly of Amer- the state of American journalism today. What was done to the New York Post on the Hunter Biden laptop story speaks poorly of American journalism today. Um, the, the general treatment of Fox News, I think, by, uh, by other outlets and by the political establishment speaks poorly of American journalism today. Um, think back to the Trump administration and the way that Jim Acosta from CNN made an ass out of himself in the press briefings on, on almost a daily basis. Had I been a member, and I am a former member of the White House um, Press Association, had I been in the briefing room, my position would have been, Jim, you've asked your question, Sit down and shut up because the rest of us have things that we need to ask Spicer or Sarah Saunders or whomever about. They didn't do it. They just they just let Acosta run loose. I don't think that if Peter Ducey from Fox or John Gizzy from Newsmax or another right-leaning outlet representative in the White House press room behaved the way that Jim Acosta behaved with Jen Psaki, they'd be thrown out of the building. And I mean, they didn't, they, their, didn't they do their something similar? Their removed by the association. Didn't they do something similar to one of those OAN reporters at the beginning of COVID? That's a little bit more complicated um, because it, if I remember the story correctly, it had to do with the allocation, the reallocation of spaces in the briefing room. And because of the social distancing requirements, 
that there wasn't going to be room for everyone in the briefing. And um, the person that you're speaking about entered a briefing on a day that wasn't their turn because they had been invited. If I remember it correctly, they had been invited in by a member of the White House communications office. Um, Now, fair point to say that if it had been someone from CNN who did it, um, because you can't keep us out. We're a major news organization. We should be at every briefing. I think you would have had a lot more serious, sober conversation about the challenge of press access in a COVID White House and how do you balance the needs of news organizations um, when the pandemic requires um, a restriction in, to be imposed on access to White House officials, even in the briefing room, because everybody's social distancing. But because it was a right-wing outlet, they pounded on them for for violating the rules, and no one came to their defense. Let's uh, let's rewind. At least that's at least that's how I see it. I yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It, see it another way, and they're allowed to. You know. I remember one of the things that, you know, lit a fire under a lot of people was that she had tried uh, accusing several MSNBC reporters of being Chinese disinformation agents. I mean, there was a, it was such a wild time. I was still living in D.C. at that point. Um, rewinding back to Jim Acosta, though, and this this kind of, you know, gets back into the, you know, are you a reporter? Are you a commentator type of situation? I mean, I think that's that's what confuses a lot of people because you got a lot of you know, quote unquote it's, reporters. It's, are you a commentator? Based. Are you a reporter? Are you just a jerk? Do you think and, when, and every profession has its jerks. Do you think when Acosta published his book though, when he published his book on Trump and his presidency and everything, and he tried to paint himself out to be this hero and he's risking his life at going into the white house press room and everything at that point, it's like anyone Anyone of two brain cells would basically say there's no way that this guy who just wrote a book attacking this person he's supposed to be reporting on should still be a reporter. Hmm. But they kept well, I, him there. I, I, I didn't read the book. Um, Nobody we're having that We're having that conversation now. Um, now that Jen Psaki's going to MSNBC and getting her own television show, you know, is it really ethical for her to continue to conduct the White House briefings? Did, did that get confirmed? Um, like, is that actually happening? I, I, it's my understanding that it was confirmed. If I'm incorrect, then I'm incorrect, and I apologize. Um, but it's my understanding that I, I know the conversation was ongoing. Um, that's at least the rumor. And, um, again, if I'm not right, I apologize. Um, but you know, it, it's relevant to the question that this discussion was at least being had. That's... That's encouraging. But, you know, where it where it all breaks down is that somewhere along the line, being a commentator meant you could get famous and you could get rich. And I think there are a lot of hardworking, serious journalists and commentators in Washington who are trying to produce the best product they can, 
who are interested in, in participating in the writing of the first draft of history, who are serious about their, their art. And I think then there are people who think that this is a neat way to meet women or a neat way to meet men um, and will get me my beach house in Lewis, Delaware and um, a couple of trips to Europe and a boat and um, maybe my own show. And I can get paid a million dollars a year and I can make Tucker Carlson money. Uh, that's, I think, part of the reason that the, the commentariat has supplanted the news gatherers in, in the attention that they get because it's big business. It's, it's a commentary is a bigger business than news reporting. You know, people get paid for sharing their opinions because that generates traffic. That means money. Um, objective news gatherers don't generate as much traffic unless you're unless you're an investigative reporter and you're able to write about, um, you know, rat poop in restaurants or um, sexual shenanigans in Hollywood or financial misdeeds on Wall Street. Um, you know, good versus evil kind of stuff that gets attention, but the but the just the the ordinary um, you know, legal back and forth in court reporting or just the information um, display in, in financial reporting, these kind of things are not necessarily making people rich. It, it's really um, so. Sad. I think you're seeing people moving into the opinion sector because. Then they'll buy my book. Then I'll get a TV show. Then I'll get a radio show. Then I'll get a beach house. Yeah, I mean, it's really sad. When, when I worked at the Washington Times, and, and I mean, it, it, it still shocks me to this day. My first day at the Times was the day that Wes Pruden died. Like, I met Wes Pruden one time. He said hello to me as I was walking in for my interview. And like a week and a half later, I walked in to put my stuff on my desk. Um, and they were like, Wes Pruden has just died. And it was it was a really weird moment to walk in as this new chapter in the history of the Washington Times was happening. And, and that kind of forced me to like want to understand more of the history, more of the culture of the times. I mean, Wes Pruden, whether people loved him or hated him, I don't I don't think I met anyone that didn't respect him because he was a newsman down to his core and he never called himself a reporter. He always said, I'm a newspaper guy. That was his thing. He wore his West Pruden hat and wore his West Pruden, you know, suit and tie uniform. Like he, everyone knew who he was. And he spent decades and decades before he even touched commentary. And, and I look at people like him and, you know, I look at somebody on the left, I look at Hunter S. Thompson, for example, he even says that, you know, people think that I just wrote Hell's Angels and I became an overnight sensation. What they don't see was all the, you know, regular copy I had to draft and report on just to put food on the table. There used to be kind of a meritocracy. And the one thing I noticed, um, you know, my my editor at the time was, uh, was, was Ethan Epstein and then it was Carol Herman. Carol Herman died about a year ago. Ethan Epstein left uh, about a year and a half before that. Um, like both of them before they even touch commentary as commentators in their own careers, like so many years had passed, like they had to actually prove that they could report a story and they could do it fairly. And then when they got into commentary, it's like they had that meritocracy supporting the fact that they had earned that right to be there. What began to 
concern me. And I saw this with some of the news editors for sports and for the national security desk, which ironically, I sat right right next to the editor of the NATSET desk. You had a lot of young reporters or people that wanted to be reporters who came in who said, yeah, I just want to do this for a little bit. So that way I can become a columnist because I've got such amazing things to say. And it's like, if that, if that is your whole intention, then it's almost like you're being disingenuous to the process. I think that's fair. I think that's, there's, there's truth in that. I think it's fair. Um, I, I've noticed, and it, it, it may be um, part of being a millennial, and it may be um, where I am at my particular station in life now. But now I notice an awful lot of people in a hurry wanting to cut the line. And that's true in journalism. It's true in law. It's, to, it's true in the campaign business. It's true in the competition for public office. Um, Dick Army, who was the House Majority Leader for a number of years, starting in 1994, He's just written a book called Leader. It's his memoir. It's an excellent book. Um, Because of the information and wisdom that it conveys. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is the difference between being a person of status and being a person of stature. A person of stature is is the kind of person that you described, who paid their dues, who is honest in their dealings with people, who is upfront about who they are, what they want to accomplish. And through patience, hard work, and an appetite to learn, garners the respect of their colleagues. Person of status is somebody who is famous or important momentarily. And when I look at Capitol Hill today, particularly among conservatives, since that tends to be the um, the area that I cover most. I see an awful lot of people who are persons of status and will never be persons of stature. They're not interested in putting in the work. They're interested in reaping the rewards. And they think the way to get there is by going on TV and by saying outrageous things rather than by creating coalitions to pass legislation that changes the country for the better. You know, I, mean, I can I can go on TV and say outrageous things. I can't introduce a piece of legislation in the House of Representatives um, intended to index capital gains for inflation. So that you're not you're not paying inflated tax rates on cheaper money uh, because the government mishandled monetary policy and your asset grew in value um, or, or, or grew in grew in the dollar amount that it was worth, but may have actually lost value. Um, I can't do that. Only a member of Congress can do that. And I would prefer that they stay in their lane um, and leave my lane, the commentator lane to me and people like me who know a little bit or hopefully know a little bit anyway about what they're talking about. There, there was, um, there was a reporter. I remember she was a, she was a local DC reporter. She covered the crime beat. I I think her name was Sophie Kaplan. I know that she left reporting 
completely uh, in 2020. But like, you know, when I think of like the real honest brokers, especially the reporters, I, I think a lot of I think a lot of people, have, especially people on the right, they, they've got this very generic negative opinion of reporters. If somebody's a good reporter they're, they they work a lot more than people realize. And that was the one thing that I had to gather because I had a lot of I had a lot of that bias going into media professionally the first time I didn't realize how much work reporters actually had to put in. But uh, Sophie, I remember somebody made a comment about her at one point at an event I was at. They're like, oh, you're, you're working with her. Don't you know she's a liberal? And I'm like, I would have never known that. Now, what I did know about her was that she had interned at Media Matters. And at some point in college, she had worked on some political campaign. But all I knew about her from her actual reporting and everything was that there were moments, especially when you're covering like D.C. politics and the crime beat and everything. Like I've seen enough left wing you know, crime reporters kind of put the spin on things. I never got that from her. And it was one of those things where it's like she is she's a genuine broker of the truth and everyone respected her. And it was I, funny. I don't, too. I don't, I don't remember her byline, but I, you know, I would rather be respected and be able to look myself in the mirror when I'm shaving, um, look at myself in the mirror when I'm shaving rather than, um, you know, be famous and, and, and really lie in bed at night going, Oh God, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, how can I, how can I live with myself? Um, doing doing this kind of stuff, putting out this kind of propaganda. Now there are people who don't who disagree with things that I write and with conclusions I reach who say I am putting out propaganda. Um, I don't see it that way. I think that that most everything I write is um, grounded in fact and I am trying to interpret those facts for the people who choose to read what it is I have to say about an issue. What does it mean? Why is it happening? How does it affect you? Uh, there are a lot of people who are, who are both shoe leather reporters and commentators, I think, who do that today, and they do it well. They don't necessarily get a lot of credit for it, and there are people who dominate the industry who on, on both the left and the right, who are guilty of shading the facts in order to further an argument, that the argument is more important than the facts. I think the facts are more important than the argument. I think the facts direct the argument. To kind of wrap things up, I mean, we, we've covered a lot so far. You know, when you look back to when you first started as a columnist to where you currently are at now in your career, has your, has your objective changed? Have, you know, have, what, what are some of the things that, you've, that you wish you knew back then that you've adapted into how you do things now? No, my objective is still the same. I want to pay my mortgage every month. Um, got the kids out of the house. So, you know, that's, that's one thing off the list, but yeah, I still want to pay my mortgage. Um, and you know, someday I like to be famous and, and get the beach house and all these other things, but I'd like to do it honestly through, um, through my hard work, not through my ability to be outrageous or to appeal to uh, a preset audience, uh, 
by running around and picking picking the low hanging fruit and and leaving the really good juicy stuff up for other people to gather. Um, I think I've learned that being first on a story is great. Being right is better. Being first and right is the best. But there are an awful lot of people who rush because they want to be first um, and they end up not being right. I think it's important to acknowledge your mistakes. I've actually written, devoted a couple of columns over the course of my career to the fact that I was wrong about something. I, a couple of weeks I wrote ago, I wrote this and I was wrong. And I was wrong because I forgot about this and I forgot to mention that. And I owe it to you, my readers, to be honest with you and to, and to, and to admit when I'm wrong rather than gloss over uh, what's happened. I think one of the big changes that the internet has created because of email and because of Twitter is that, and you, you may experience this yourself through the podcast, is that media is now a lot more interactive than it used to be. People expect to be able to reach reporters and make comments to them directly about stories that they've written. Um, and they can do it instantly through the internet, and they expect a response a lot of the time. It's a blessing and a curse because it democratizes the access to these, you know, purveyors of information. But at the same time, it's also an opportunity for people to try and drown out things, character assassinate. I mean, I, you know, people try and say, oh, well, it's Twitter's fault. Well, it's Facebook's fault. I don't blame platforms. I don't, I don't blame technology. I mean, at the end of the day, it just comes down to people. And if Pla- you're doing platforms something. Platforms are, I think the word is anodyne. Um, they're neither good nor bad. They exist. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the people who use them and the people who administer them. And I don't, I don't think, frankly, that the platforms are being terribly honest. I mean, they are, they are the national town square now. They are where the national conversation is happening to some degree. Um, and I think that um, while I don't broadly hold with the idea that right-wing views are being censored on certain platforms, I do think that there may be certain individuals who have the power within certain organizations at a, at a very rubber-meets-the-road level, not at the most senior corporate levels, um, who have the power to turn people off who choose to use it and to use it indiscriminately. And I don't think that the people who are in the corridors of power in, in the organizations that run those platforms are very honest about that. Um, they're not doing themselves any, anything helpful by not explaining it. Oh, we had some subcontractor who worked part-time who read your tweet and thought it made you a racist and he turned off your Twitter account and he doesn't work for us anymore. And we're sorry. It's Um, a long, it would go a long way to help them if they could do that. It's um, it's such a, it's such a perverse situation. I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. When, when I was the outreach director for parlor, when Trump was still president and this towards the, the fall of 2020, uh, I won't name the individual, but there was there was a conservative radio host. He wasn't even mainstream. He wasn't one of the cumulus guys. He wasn't a WMAL host or anything. He was just some guy in some Midwest radio uh, region. 
And he was part of the blue checkmark mafia, as I like to call them. And he got in trouble for saying something that was not something you or I would disagree with, but it was something that the Twitter gods found issue with. So they went ahead and suspended his account. Uh, Within 24 hours, everyone, Glenn Beck, Dana Lash, Sean Hannity, everyone you can imagine who matters in the conservative media sphere saying, oh, they're silencing him because of X opinion and this. And, and I reach out to this individual and I say, hey, come over to Parler. I'll get you verified. We'll, we'll make a statement. We'll help you get whatever you need. You could say what you want here. It's fine. And the guy was just like, yeah, but you don't understand. This is the best day in my life. Because what happened? Because what happened was he was on Fox hourly. He was on OAN and Newsmax. I mean, he was everywhere. Everyone was tweeting in support of him who liked him and didn't like those people. And then all he did was he just deleted the tweet. He came back. He got half a million new followers. And then he got a book deal. And now you probably see him on Fox News every so often. And it was like, you know, he, he bent the knee and, you know, while he had this opportunity to come to parlor, he didn't do it. Um, he was like, I'm going to stay here and fight the fight. And it's almost like, wait a second. If you really believe these things, you would go to the free speech platform. Instead, what you did was this is really an opportunity for personal enrichment. It reminds me of the admonition that what what some intend for evil, God will use for good. Um. And for him, you know, this was a lemon that he used to make lemonade. And that's a very American response. And I, I just sort of say good for him, you know. Um, you know, rare is the person who will stand up and volunteer to really be a free speech warrior and sacrifice themselves in the name of principle. Um, a lot of people are willing to take the hits if they see... Um, if they hear the cash register going off on the other side, and maybe I'm just too cynical, um, but I believe that, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting the lemon and I know how to make the lemonade, then, you know, bring it on. Very few people these days. And, and, and frankly, you know, why should that, um, in a sense, used to be when I was growing up, liberals and conservatives, would cheerfully say, I don't agree with a thing you have to say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it. They don't say that anymore. They're, 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 they're actively censorious. Um, you have people who are supposedly believers in the free market who want to use the government to break up big tech companies over this issue as though somehow the food, the federal trade commission and the federal communications commission bureaucrats would somehow be more fair to, to right wing limited government opinion than the guys that run Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and parlor and truth and beauty and sleep and wake and all the other platforms that are or will ever exist. Um, it just, it's just giving the government control over speech. And I think that's ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I miss people like Nat Hentoff, who, who was a, a, a warrior for decades on behalf of the right to speak, even, even to speak things that were offensive and, it, I think it cost him sometimes 
but he never surrendered the principle. Um, you know, and he, he, he moved from important papers to, to, to niche papers. Um, but I miss, I miss his writing. I miss what he had to say about these issues. Um, if, you know, there's a, there, there, there are very few ideas that are so dangerous that you can't talk about them. Um, I can't think of one that is. I mean, there are a number of things that are ugly and distasteful and um, evil. But if you're not willing to talk about them, you're kind of pretending that they don't exist. It's sort of like Voldemort in the Harry Potter books. You know, he who must be not, not be named. You can't even mention his name because maybe it'll bring him back. Um, you know, we, we, need to, we need to stop being... The, the people, though, who are most afraid of the honest argument are the people who know that their side is weak. And... Completely. They want to step on speech because they know they don't have a good answer for the concerns and issues that are raised. They want to be able to speak truth and have it received unquestioningly. And that's how you get to two and two equals five. Well, didn't you hear that math is racist now? So two and two can yes. be white supremacy. I, I, I've heard that math is racist. I've heard that 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 what we used to call the King's English is racist. Um, I've heard that everything is racist now, depending on on depending on the utility of the idea of racism to the person making the charge on a specific issue, which completely annihilates any serious conversation about whatever real racism may still exist in America. And believe me, this is a far less racist country than it was when I was born in the middle of the 1960s, um, which may be why people are having to, to identify and raise new questions of what constitutes racism because they have a vested interest in the debate um, you know, the debate is financially lucrative. The outcome is not. We have to, we have to, the a, a movie once where they're, the corporate executives are talking about some great crisis and somebody pipes up and says, not to mention this could cost us all our cushy jobs. And at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, the, the, that's, that matters to a lot of people. From your mouth to God's ears, I mean, it's a uh, it, it's it's a it's a wild situation when you when you have to look at situations like that. Well, Peter, we've run up on time. This has been a fascinating conversation. I bet you and I could go for a few hours just on that one topic alone. But if people want to go ahead and read your work, uh, you know, uh, chat with you online and everything else, how could they do so? Uh, I'm I have a monthly column in the opinion section of Newsweek at Newsweek.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at The Roth Draft. Uh, got a Facebook page where I post most of what I write. Uh, and I'm syndicated through the Cagle Syndicate. Uh, so I have columns that appear in small and medium-sized newspapers across the United States. Peter, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute blast, sir. My pleasure. 
Well, folks, if you enjoy conversations like this and more, go ahead and do us a quick favor. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. A five-star rating and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts across Al Gore's amazing internet, it costs you absolutely nothing, but it helps us get conversations like these out into the ether. As always, I'm Rep. W. Martinez. Thank you again for tuning in. Be safe. Be good. Good night.